All right, how you doing today? All right, I have my phone with me. If any of you text me while I'm preaching, I'm going to call you out. I'm going to say, well, so-and-so. Um, never know when the president's going to call me, so i got it with me just in case. Take your Bibles and go to the book of James, chapter 2. While you're turning there, I want to take care of an uh, announcement that needs to be made. This afternoon at 2 o'clock, we will have the funeral service for one of our members, uh, Weldon Young. Most of you in here will know or at least would recognize his face if you saw a picture of Weldon, but he passed away this week. And uh, so at 2 o'clock this afternoon at Broussard's on Major Drive, uh, we'll have his funeral service. Because of that, uh, I'm going to bug out a little quicker than I normally do after church today uh, to be ready for that. But um, be in prayer. If you're not planning on being at the service, be in prayer for Barbara and the rest of the family uh, in this difficult time. Okay? Did you do that? Okay. So if I, um, if I said to you or ask you this question, um, are you saved? How would you respond to that? Okay, so I got the right crowd, sounds like. <laughs> you know, if you've been here, you should know that it's okay to talk back to the preacher, uh, as long as you're, like, sort of nice. Um, but especially in this case, are you saved? How do you answer that? All right, now, most of us, wait a minute, say that again. Are you saved? And you said what? Okay, all right. So most of us are Baptist enough that if I said in answer to that question, let's do it this way. You ask me, are you saved? And, go ahead. It's all right. All right. I'm working on it. Now, many of us are Baptist enough to hear a I'm working on it uh, causes us to cringe just a little or a lot. As a matter of fact, Some of you, I can see it in your eyes, even with the lights shining in on me here, I can see it in your eyes that you can't wait to get me alone to correct my doctrine on I'm working on it. But I I think actually what I would like to do is uh, start today with this point of teaching, all right? And so bear with me for a few minutes here because I'm going to get a little bit uh, teachery on you. Um, here's the reality of biblical salvation. When we as Baptists hear the question, and it's not just us as Baptists, but that's who we are here, so I'm going to pick on us uh, or come from that point of reference. When we hear the question, are you saved? What we hear is, have you made, and you correct me if you think I'm wrong. No, don't do that. Just kind of let me know you don't agree with me. We make this immediately jump to, okay, he's talking about has he made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ? Is that a fair assumption that most of us, when we hear, are you saved, that's what we hear, right? And that's okay. Uh, a matter of fact, that's more than okay. That's true. That's a right statement. But if we're going to be truly biblical about it, there is a bigger answer than just that piece. Because that piece is the front end of salvation as we understand it presented in Scripture. Now, I'm going to use some $4 words on you here, and I'll come back and put them in English. But um, in theological terms, that first step, that point of reference where we say, yes, I trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, that's called justification. 
Okay, and if you don't know what justification means, let me just put it this way, and it'll help you remember it from now on. It is because of Jesus making a decision to trust Christ for salvation, and he makes you just as if you had never sinned. Okay, it's the front end of salvation that says you are saved. So let me stop for a second and just make sure that I throw out the invitation here at the very beginning of the message. If you have not come to a point in your life where you trust Christ as your Savior to take sin and the effects of sin and the penalty of sin away from you, if you've not put your trust in Jesus as your Savior, um, that's the main message you need to hear this morning, that that life that only Jesus can give is available to you. That's entry into salvation We call that justification. But my answer is, I'm working on it, now pushes us to that part of salvation that is next. Because justification is a point in time. You make a decision to trust Christ as your Savior. And Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, transforms you and takes away the the, Penalty of sin. There's a lot bigger than just that, and I get all of the arguments, and I'm trying to put it down where we can grab it first this morning. So that's the entry, though, because the I'm working on it part of salvation is what we call sanctification. And that is the process that we enter into once we become Christ's children, if you will, or Christ's followers, where we place our faith in Christ. Um, then we enter into this life that we have where we become more like Christ. Sanctification, if we put it a different way, is to become holy. Or, in all of our cases, to become holier. Because none of us are ever really, I mean, face it, look at the people around you. They're not ever going to be holy. But they can be holier. And the goal of discipleship, the entire life that we have after justification, after accepting Christ, is to become more like Christ, as disciples of Christ. And so when I say I'm working on it, is to say, I hear, are you saved in that part of the question, or in that part of salvation, right? And then the final part, and I'm not going to elaborate on this one, but the final part is what we call glorification, and that is when our life is over here, uh, we move away from this life into the the other part of eternal life, which is after we die, we get to go and be with Christ forever, okay? We're going to have the funeral service for Weldon Young this afternoon, and I feel confident based on my own discussions with him, and not just because he said the words, but because of some other things, I feel confident that Weldon is in the glorification part of salvation now because he knew Christ as his Savior. He lived a life trying to become more like him, and in the process of that, God has taken him to be home with him in heaven. Glorification. So salvation in a biblical sense is a much broader term than just walking the aisle at youth camp or some other camp or a revival service or whatever and making a profession of faith. All right, are you with me on that so far? So much for the college lesson of the day. Let's move to where that fits. Look with me in James chapter 2 because now we step into, <laughs> we step into a centuries-old debate And I'm just uh, naive enough or simple-minded enough to believe that we can settle the centuries-old debate right here today. How's that for a large claim? Verse 17 of chapter 2, James says this, So also faith by itself, 
if it does not have works, is dead. And before I read the second verse that I have for us in this, let me see if I can capture the debate. There are those people in church history, and many, many, many of them around today, in a resurgence of a movement that seems to want to say that, oh boy, see, I could get really mean in the way I say this now. Uh, and you know me, so here it comes. Um, there are some people in our day who seem to prefer what Paul says over what Jesus says. And this centuries-old debate seems to want to put Paul and the teachings of Paul relative to salvation up against James. Martin Luther himself, and I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, Martin Luther Uh, The great theologian of days past, I know he wasn't a Baptist, but he was still a great theologian. He wasn't all right, though, because one of the things that he said, and part of it tied directly to this verse, he said that the book of James was a right strawy epistle. In other words, it really was not worth much. And part of that is because Martin Luther, in his time and in his context, was moving away from this works-based salvation that the church, the church of his day, was promoting Uh, And Martin Luther rediscovered some of what we call justification by faith that Paul teaches. And so Martin Luther took Paul and held him up and then used James to say, well, James doesn't get it because James seems to be promoting a works-based salvation. Now, my point and the reason I can say that I think we can settle this today, uh, that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, is because James doesn't say that you have to be saved by works. He never said that. We'll talk about that as we go forward. Verse 24 maybe helps to solidify the position a little bit of historical controversy, and that is verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And most of us good Baptists and evangelicals would go, what? How can you say that? Not by faith alone. Because we know in another part of the New Testament that Paul says to us, and we are saved By grace, through faith. We're saved not of works, lest any man should boast. Right? So what's what's the answer? Because even in this day, there seems to be this intent to square off and take sides and pit Paul and his view of salvation against James and his view of salvation. And, well, we get caught in the middle of that in our... Living especially gets caught in the middle of that. And so let me just throw these two. I'm not going to read these verses, but if you're taking notes and you want to check it out, I'm going to say this. I I believe that you find James supporting Paul's position in James chapter 1, verse 21, and you find Paul supporting James's position in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. But let me make sure you get this right. In the overall uh, chronological scheme of the New Testament, James was written long before Paul wrote his stuff. And they play off of each other, and both of them, I believe, would agree with each other, and we should understand those truths. So let me take what James says, and let me boil it down to this kernel of truth, and I'll lay it at your feet. I think that what James says is this, when you get saved, even your dog should know that there's been a change in your life. So let me put it in Rotramalese for you today. Based on the way James teaches us here, are you dead or alive? 
So let's get the context right. We'll start plowing through this. First of all, James has this thesis to his entire book. We call it a book. It's actually a letter. Uh, I've, I've argued from the beginning that it's probably actually a sermon that got put into writing. And uh, So here's his entire thesis. It's the reason I've chosen the title for the series that I did, which is It Works. Uh, James's entire thesis for this book is faith has to work. Your faith has to work. And we've seen that in a number of ways already. We saw a couple of weeks ago, your faith has to work in your mouth and the way you talk. Your faith, we saw last week, has to work in the way you do church. And now James just comes back and he says to us, your faith has to work. I could have used in this passage of scripture today as the introduction sermon text for the entire series because this is where we just, James just boils it down for us and in a handful of verses, and I'll read those in a few moments, James says essentially this, your faith has to work. Now as we saw last week, we started plowing into this first major development of his thesis. He starts to unpack this idea of inclusion that we cannot play favorites in church. And our faith has to work in the way we view each other. And he particularly chose the example of rich people and poor people in church. And, you know, if, you, if you're coming in as a poor person and you see the church seeing a rich person come in, and the rich person gets all of the perks. I'm taking off of the rich and the poor. And let's say, you know, I was part of a church for a while. Uh, not this one, but part of another church. And one guy in particular was just bound and determined to give the pastor a front row parking place for church. And I kept resisting that. I don't want that. He said, no, we'll, we'll, first of all, we'll paint the, the deal, the closest spot to the entry doors, and we'll paint it on the deal, no parking, pastors only. And then he said, we'll build a shed over it to keep your car out of the heat. I'm going, no, no, no. Why would I say that? Because I don't want anybody to think that as a church, in that case or in this case, that Certain people get special privileges. That's Paul's point, as we saw last week, the first 13 verses of chapter 2. He talked about the poor and the rich. So now he expands on that. And what we find today, he shows us that that favoritism that gets shown in churches, I talked about it as celebrities last week, is not acceptable. Now he helps us to see what drives the behavior that would want us to help some people have a uh, a better status. That's verses 1 through 13. Verses 14. Now I'm going to start reading through this and show you where I'm coming from. So, so in verses 14 through 17, Paul gives us the statement, the truth of what he's about to say, and then he elaborates on that with an example. So I'll start reading in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And here's the rhetorical question that drives the whole discussion now. Can that faith, save him. Don't miss what James says, and especially don't miss what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, can those works save him? He says, can the faith that has no works be sufficient to save this guy? Verse 15, here's the example. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, so he draws back from the poor, rich comparison that we saw last week. So if that brother... Uh, comes in and one of you says to him, this is verse 16 now, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? I'll come back to that verse 
in a little bit, but let's keep moving. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So there's your contemporary illustration. Somebody comes in, they need something, and they, that, that is known within the church, and the person within the church says, uh, good luck with that. James says, how can that be evidence of salvation? So, verses 18 and 19, now James takes on the objection that he knows somebody would throw up to that. And so in verse 18 he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, uh, every man for himself. James responds to that and says, show me your faith apart from your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. Verses nine, uh, verse 19, I guess I should read, right? You be, you be, sorry about that. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, there's more to it than what you want to put to it. If you just believe faith doesn't have to work. So in verses 20 through 26 now, he gives two different examples, both from Hebrew uh, heritage, uh, one of which those people who are arguing for faith alone would rise up and applaud Abraham. After all, the father of the faithful, of course you have to talk about him if you're talking about being justified by faith. And so in verse 20, oh, the other one, by the way, is a prostitute. Never should those two go together, many would say. And yet, James uses them in such a way, uh, as far as the way he writes this, the literary tool that he uses here inclu- is an inclusive kind of a statement. So if it's true for Abraham, it's true for Rahab, then it's certainly true for everybody in between, including us. And so here's what he says, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his work, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. In other words, here's your superstar argument, Abraham. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In other words, James says, you see, I win. I got the argument. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 25, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so when, in, in using all of that together, here's the basic point that James throws at us. Faith without works is useless. Now, if you're a Paulite out there, that makes you cringe. But I'm arguing today that we need to get the full picture of what salvation is. James, as I already said in in 121, points backwards to uh, this this basic truth that we believe, and clearly the New Testament teaches that justification salvation only comes by faith in Christ. You can't do enough to earn salvation. You can't. But James's argument is not tied to how do you get justified. James's argument is how do you show that you're justified? 
And if you don't show it, then maybe you should question whether it's even there or not. All right, I'm going to say this again later, but let me just go ahead and get it out there now. There would be those who would say to, you, to me as a pastor today, saying, you better be careful preaching that. You're going to get people doubting their salvation. So in all the, you know I love you by now? Do you, hello? <laughs> Boy, I was hoping for a real quick, yeah. Um, I love you. And I love you enough not to help you believe a lie. So I'm going to tell you the truth. If a sermon like this causes you to doubt your salvation, maybe you should doubt your salvation. So look at these verses. I'm going to take them in rapid fire. Watch how fast Spencer is. Verse 14. Here's James's argument. Remember, faith without works is useless. That's his argument. Verse 14. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. Verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? <laughs> wow. What do you really think, James? Do you want to be shown, uh, let me, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And finally in verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James says, in the language of my sermon today and the title, which is Dead or Alive, James says, if you don't have works to show for your justification decision, then you're dead. Wow. That, that, ought, to, that ought to shake us up a little bit. Here's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is why I brought my phone, by the way. I was spending a little time in hospital or medical waiting rooms these days, and you want to know what I do with my time? Here you go. So I have this commentary on my phone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a modern-day martyr. He was a voice of conscience, of Christian conscience, during the time of Nazi Germany, in Nazi Germany. As a matter of fact, Ultimately, the Nazi regime executed him as a Lutheran pastor and an incredible theologian. Bonhoeffer was living in Germany as a spiritual leader, a leader of the church, during a time that the church bought wholesale into Nazi Germany's philosophy. So Bonhoeffer started talking about cheap grace as opposed to costly grace. Here's something of what he had to say about that. I'm just going to read a quote from Bonhoeffer. He says it best. Cheap grace is a type of faith that does not necessarily lead to actions because it does not demand a changed heart. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine or a principle or a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. Cheap grace is an intellectual assent to that idea that is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. In other words, it can get your sins uh, forgiven. 
Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. You know what repentance is? <laughs> repentance is to do an about face, very literally translated. It is to be going one direction and recognize that that is an error and to turn around and go the other direction, which is right. Bonhoeffer, even though he died in the 40s, 1940-something to be exact, saw very well into the 2015s in American society where churches wholesale buy into repent, uh, remission of sins, forgiveness of sins without forgiveness. I just go to God who is like a shower and I get showered clean and I go back and do the same thing over and over again because I know I can be forgiven. There's no repentance there. That's cheap grace. Cheap grace, back to Bonhoeffer, which you wish he was here preaching. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Wow. James would say, if you bought into cheap grace, you're dead. Or at least your faith is. So the question that's driving today's message is, am I dead or alive? There's this TV show called The Walking Dead. Have you seen that? Some of you are going, I can't believe I've got a pastor that knows about The Walking Dead. How about a pastor who had... Oh, never mind. Um, so here's the premise of The Walking Dead. Some kind of virus sets in on the human population and it wipes out the population of the earth with a handful, relatively speaking, a handful of exceptions. Some people either are, were immune to it or they just didn't get exposed to it or whatever. And um, so uh, the, the, the particular, the deal is this virus that kills people causes them to come back to life shortly That's a, uh, as zombies. You understand the term zombie? It's what you look like when you wake up in the morning, most of you, right? But these are people, according to the line of the story, okay, it's not biblically correct at all. That doesn't happen. It's not possible. Okay, but according to the line of the show, people catch this, they die, and within a couple of minutes, because it's only an hour show, they can't wait forever, a couple of minutes, they come back to life, okay? But they're in this now dead state while they're walking around, right? And so they feed off of other humans. I made reference to this when I was talking about how we deal with each other in church, feeding off each other. But now I want to get to the dead part of that, okay? And the only way those zombies, walkers they're called, walking dead, get it? Uh, The only way they can be finally put out of their eternal misery is by taking some kind of a blow to the head. Um, but here's my point in bringing that up. Uh, I think that spiritually, 2015 in Western Christianity has a lot of walkers in it. They're the walking dead, according to what James is saying. Somewhere in their past, you can trace to a decision point where they made this intellectual decision. Maybe some, maybe it's an emotional decision. Somebody talked them in to walk in the aisle. Somebody prayed a prayer with them. Uh, but life never changed after that. 
Or maybe it did change, but since then it's gone, kind of re-gone, just got right back to where it was before, and there's no real life there. Spiritual zombies. James would say, that's not life. He would say, that's not acceptable. So what I want to do, okay, you basically have the teaching of this passage. Now, I know, we have some theologues among us, I get that. Uh, I know that I am reducing a huge argument out of this passage to something that we can chew on today. It's all right. That's my job in these, these times like this. Um, in other words, there's a lot more that could be said. But I think we've seen enough of the basic truth of what James is saying, the need to wear what we see. So let me spend a few minutes now pulling it down for us so that we can take something home that helps us live. How, how do we get this teaching wrong? Remember that James writes his point here in this overall presentation of favoritism in the church uh, and this idea of inclusion and pulling people in and, and, and not showing favorites in the middle of all of that stuff. And, and so it, it plays out, this rich and poor difference in how we treat each other. He is talking to the church about internal stuff. So here's how I think we get it wrong. You, uh, are you aware of the Facebook? You know Facebook, right? Hello, y'all know what Facebook is? I know you do because I see a lot of you on there and all that's good. And uh, I have some mixed emotions about social media. Uh, but I do, I do think it can be a good tool. My problem with it is, a problem that I have with it is that sometimes it, it begins to take on a life of its own in propagating bad theology. Um, so let me do it this way. And, and by the way, I know when I ask this question that I have done the same thing, still do the same thing, so this is not me hitting on you. This is like us all going, oh, yeah, I see how common that could be. When you see someone posting on Facebook or Twitter or even Instagram perhaps, uh, I got a need. Now, they don't ever say it that way. Usually it comes across as... You know, my bunion on my big toe's killing me, and I don't know what to do about it. You know what I'm talking about? Those are y'all there? Hello. All right. So, when needs get posted on Facebook, how do Christians typically respond on Facebook? Okay, this is audience participation, right? I don't mind asking the question. You don't mind answering me back. It'd be perfect. Okay. All right. I got this need. And so our response to that tends to be praying for you. Or we've reduced that down to shorthand now, praying. Now, I get that, all right? Because realistically, if you're going to respond by Facebook, how can you respond other than I see that or I hear that and so here's my response. I'll be praying for you. By the way, I'm not suggesting that we not pray for people. You want to pray for me? By all means, pray for me. But my concern and what I think turns out to be bad theology for us is if we're not careful, that is our answer to their need. Okay, I'm praying for you. And then we move on about our lives like we've done what we need to do. James would say, you need to kind of check yourself on that. Here's how I know that. Look at verse 16 again. Because verse 16, I think, is a verbal machete that James takes to his people. Verse 16 says... 
Uh, and back to, it starts at verse 15 where a brother or sister has this need. Verse 16, and one of you says to them, go in peace, that's the word shalom, be warmed and filled. Now, I'm going to stop there to make sure we get the first century Jewish connotation here. That is code speak in first century Jewish life. That's a way of saying, uh, I hear you, blessings upon you. You with me? All right. In other words... I'll put it in 21st century Christian life. Good luck with that. Or I'll put it in Facebook lingo. Praying. Now, that's a little offensive, isn't it? I'm sure glad James said that and not me. But it's, that's not enough. There, there is a dismissive quality even in first century Jewish life the way James puts that out there. It's, it is a statement that essentially says with it, I don't intend to help you, but blessings on you. Now James ramps it up in the way he writes this. And I, without getting into a Greek grammar lesson, let me just throw this at you. There's a couple of different ways we can take these verbs. One of them has this sense about it that says, uh, you need to help yourself. So the, the ESV, which is what I'm reading from, translates this as passive verbs. Be warmed, be filled. All right? That's the point of reference that essentially pulls God in on it. And, and you, so you're confronted with the need, and your response is, well, God will fix that for you. Parenthetically, but I ain't getting involved. That's the sense of what he writes here. But it could also be translated in the middle voice, which essentially says, uh, you brought this on yourself, you fix it. I'm hungry. Well, you see, that's your own fault. You should have, and then we fill in the blank on what you should have done. James says, are you kidding me? Your faith don't work. Bad English, but it's good theology. God will help you, but I won't. Help yourself, but I won't. It's a verbal machete. James says, you need to check yourself. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ who went out of his way to cut across the grain of established religion to get involved with hurting people, you should think twice about not getting involved with hurting people. That's what James says. It's his brother he's talking about. He had to come to that. <laughs> so let me tell you, that's how we get it wrong. Let me tell you how I think we get it right, because I'd like to brag on Crestwood a little bit. Let me just say, if you happen to be uh, a guest with us today and you're not, you know, this is not where you normally go to church, or maybe you're looking at us going, maybe I'll go to, the ch- I, don't know, I don't like that preacher, but I'm, I like the people. Maybe I'll go to church there. Uh, let me brag on this church, because one of the things I say to people who think about joining on a regular basis, every time I can, I say, there's some good folks at Crestwood. Now, there's a few people that, you know, I'm not too bad, but for the most part, they're good folks here. You know, we had a guy that came to me about joining, he and his family, uh, not too long ago, in the overall scheme of the time I've been here. And he said, I, I, would, I think we want to join your church. That's not my church, I know that, he knew that. That's a point of reference, right? He said, but here's the deal. I don't want to join a church where I can't help people. And I said, come again? 
He said, I, I feel like God has given me the ability to help people, and I want to do that. And so if I can't do that as a member of your church, I'm going to join another church. And I said, by all means, join up. Now, first of all, you're going to find some people in our church who are exactly like that. And you're going to find some who are not who need to be, so do that. Let me put it on me, right? Uh, not long after I got here, I learned. Uh, by the way, our musicians, come on, start coming up. I'm just about done here. Um, when I got here, I discovered that mowing yards in southeast Texas is not anything like mowing yards in deep south Texas where I used to be. Uh, I brought a push mower to a yard that was roughly 6,000 acres. I don't really remember exactly. <laughs> but I remember in July, remember I got here the last week of June of 2011. I remember in July, I put that push mower out there and I started pushing it around. Uh, you know, I came home one day and one of our deacons was on his riding lawnmower mowing my yard. God bless him. He didn't ask. He just saw that it was a point of need. Back in then, I was the only staff member here. I was working lots of hours. Mowing the yard was low on my priority list, and he took it on himself to do that. He gets what James says, I think. Comments to me lately with my health issues. Many of you have come to say, okay, so how can we help you? I, I think... I. I think I want to say for James, you get it. And I, I appreciate that. But I, I'm not the only recipient of that. Uh, first deacons meeting, I was here. We got a phone call at the end of the meeting. Middle of the night, we ended up going, some of us, to help somebody move out. Situation in the house they were in, they needed to move. And so there we were after a long day at church on Sunday, moving somebody out of one house and setting up another one. In the middle of the night, just because the need was there. And a bunch of guys said, hey, we can do something about that. That's faith that works. And to bring it right into the present context, yesterday. Did you get some rain at your house, by the way? One of our church members, God bless her heart. Blessed my heart on a deep level. Because I get on Facebook, and here's this question. Anybody need us to come over and help you? And I thought. There's a faith that works. Are you dead or alive today? That thing that you say you believe, does it get into your hands and your feet? What do you do with that? Let's pray. And so, Father, we ask you to take the words that you've written, the words that you have prompted today, and change us at a deep level. Help us to take seriously the life change ahead. May our faith work so that people know it. In Jesus' name.